0: The House will return Monday and stay in session through Wednesday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday or possibly longer. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Last week in the House, the House came back on Monday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House took up a rule and had a problem. Four New York Republicans, unhappy over the fact that a tax bill appeared to be ready to go without expanding the state and local taxes deduction, as they had promised their constituents they would do, were so unhappy that they initially cast their votes against the rule. The rule was held open while they negotiated with leadership. Eventually, they returned to the floor and switched their votes back to yes. Consequently, the rule passed on a straight party-line vote 216 to 210. Then the House took up H.R. 5585, the Agent Raul Gonzalez Officer Safety Act. After considering and rejecting an amendment, the House passed the bill by a vote of 271 to 154. On Wednesday, the House took up H.R. 6678, the Consequences for Social Security Fraud Act. After considering and adopting an amendment, the House voted to pass the bill by a vote of 272 to 155. Then the House took up H.R. 6679, the No Immigration Benefits for Hamas Terrorists Act, and passed it by a vote of 422 to 2. Yes, there were two Democrats who voted against a bill to prohibit admission into the United States of members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hamas or who participated in or otherwise facilitated the October 7, 2023 attacks on Israel, or officers, representatives, and spokespersons of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The two Democrats were Cory Bush of Missouri and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, both members of the squad. Then the House passed a bill under suspension of the rules, and then the House took up H.R. 7024, the so-called Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act, which should more properly have been named the Republicans' cave to Democrats on welfare expansion in exchange for some business tax breaks act. Under suspension of the rules, because it wouldn't have been able to get to the floor under regular order, the bill passed by a vote of 357 to 70, with 47 Republicans and 23 Democrats voting against it. We'll talk more about this bill in a moment. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 6976, the Protect Our Communities from DUIs Act, by a vote of 275 to 150. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return on Monday, with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up nine bills under suspension of the rules. The House may also take up a resolution, still unnumbered, to censure Representative Ilhan Omar, sponsored by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the House will consider H.R.E.S. 863, impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and H.R. 485, the Protecting Health Care for All Patients Act of 2023. In addition, the Speaker on Saturday afternoon added to the floor schedule for this week a supplemental spending bill to send $17.6 billion to Israel. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Last week in the Senate, the Senate returned on Tuesday and voted to confirm Joshua Paul Kolar to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm Kirk Edward Sheriff to be a U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of California and Carolyn Mahalchik to be a U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on, and then to confirm, the nomination of Joseph Goffman to be an assistant administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. On Thursday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Lisa W. Wang and Joseph Albert Laroski, Jr., both to be a judge of the U.S. Court of International Trade. Then the Senate voted to confirm Lisa W. Wang to that position, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the nomination of Joseph Albert Laroski Jr. to be a judge of the United States Court of International Trade. Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see votes on the nominations of Kurt Campbell to be Deputy Secretary of State and Amy M. Baggio to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Oregon. And I expect we'll see a procedural vote Wednesday to see if the emergency supplemental spending bill can advance. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Schedule-wise, there's talk that if Leader Schumer can succeed in getting the Senate to take up the bill, the Senate may stay in session as long as it takes to pass the bill. That would require them to give up some time from a planned two-week recess that is set to begin at the end of this week. Now to Lloyd Austin. At the beginning of January, we began this update by noting that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had been hospitalized for almost a week without telling his colleagues at the White House or the Pentagon. On Thursday of last week, more than four weeks after going undercover, he held his first press briefing to discuss the circumstances that led to his disappearance from public sight and from the chain of command. It was Austin's first formal press briefing in two years. He said he received the diagnosis of his prostate cancer as a gut punch and said he decided on his own not to tell the president, in part because he didn't want to add to all the things that he's got on his plate. Austin said that decision was a mistake. I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right. I did not handle this right. It is probably not an issue of secrecy as much as it's an issue of privacy, end quote. He said he did not order his staff to keep his cancer diagnosis secret. Austin had undergone surgery for the prostate cancer before Christmas. On the evening of Monday, January 1, he was taken by ambulance from his home to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center because he said he was in severe pain. He was admitted to the hospital's ICU. The Pentagon did not notify the White House until Thursday of that week because Austin's chief of staff was out sick. Now to that tax bill. Virtually out of nowhere, the House on Wednesday passed a $78 billion welfare bill disguised as a tax bill. The bill passed by a vote of 357 to 70, with 169 Republicans voting in favor and 47 against and 188 Democrats voting in favor and just 23 against. The fact that more Democrats voted for the bill and more Republicans voted against the bill should give you an idea of how bad this bill is, which leaves the obvious question, how did this thing move through a Republican-controlled House? It was negotiated over the last several months by House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith and Senate Finance Chairman Ron Wyden. Smith is a Republican from Missouri, Wyden is a Democrat from Oregon. Smith is the youngest Ways and Means chairman ever, and he's been chairman of the committee since January of 2023. You want to know how this bill passed the House? Jason Smith got rolled by Ron Wyden. And then Smith rolled his fellow Republicans on the Ways and Means committee, which marked up the bill and reported it out of committee by a vote of 40 to 3, with all three no votes coming from Democrats. Here's what's in the bill. In the words of the Wall Street Journal, the bill, quote, would turbocharge cash subsidies in the child tax credit through 2025 in exchange for business provisions such as bonus depreciation for equipment. Mr. Smith gave Mr. Wyden a down payment on making the child credit a universal basic income. We've explained at length how the tax bill's income redistribution via child tax credit isn't worth business deductions. The larger tax credit checks aren't seen merely as the price of doing business with Democrats but as tax relief for working families according to Republicans. The changes to the credit are not tax relief but cash checks to those who don't owe any income tax and the GOP knows it. Of the new credits $33.5 billion cost, some $30.6 billion is spending says the Joint Committee on Taxation. Kim Strassel makes it even clearer, quote, the beating heart of Wednesday's package is 2 longtime Democratic priorities, increasing the size of the child tax credit and its availability to parents who don't pay income tax. She continues, we're all for families now, and that's the justification for robbing the paychecks of productive childless taxpayers and rerouting their earnings to non-working parents. This bill would further discourage work, leaving more parents and children dependent on government largesse. In exchange, Chairman Smith got Democrats to support three business-oriented tax provisions, including allowing corporations to deduct more of their interest expenses, which reverses a policy win from the Trump 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And the kicker? The bill allows illegal aliens to claim the child tax credit. Children born in the United States to parents who are illegal aliens are nevertheless considered U.S. citizens and can apply for and receive Social Security cards. Once they have a Social Security number, their parents can apply for the child tax credit. When confronted with this, Chairman Smith called it completely false and said that, quote, It's the same language that was in Trump's tax cuts of 2017, end quote. Well, yes, it is. But that doesn't make it false. That just means the mistake was originally made in 2017 in the Trump tax cut bill. But it's still there. The bill now moves to the Senate, where Republicans, not even the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, had no input on the bill and where they may have a thing or two to say about it. Now to the Mayorkas impeachment. It only seemed as if it took forever. Last Wednesday, the House Homeland Security Committee met to mark up two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The meeting lasted all through the day and well into the evening, but it eventually ended after both articles of impeachment were passed on straight party line votes. The first article of impeachment alleges willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law, the second article of impeachment alleges breach of public trust. The resolution, Res 863, has been teed up for a vote in the House Rules Committee on Monday afternoon. That's a sign the House leadership plans to put it on the floor Tuesday or possibly Wednesday. Now to the emergency supplemental. Senate Majority Leader Schumer promised to release bill text for the emergency supplemental spending bill by Sunday. While we waited, Speaker Johnson decided to get ahead of the curve. On Saturday afternoon, he announced that the House would vote this week on a clean, standalone bill containing nothing but spending for military assistance for Israel $17.6 billion worth, to be exact. According to a summary provided by the House Appropriations Committee, the military assistance breaks down as follows $4 billion to replenish Iron Dome and David Sling missile defense systems. billion for the Iron Dome defense system to counter short-range rockets and mortar threats. $3.5 billion for the procurement of advanced weapons systems, defense articles, and defense services through the Foreign Military Financing Program. And $1 billion to enhance production and development of artillery and critical munitions. In addition, we will ensure our support for Israel does not compromise U.S. readiness, by providing $4.4 billion to replenish defense articles and defense services already provided to Israel, and $3.3 billion for current U.S. military operations in the region in response to the October 7th attack. You may recall that three months ago, as one of the first pieces of legislation he passed as Speaker, Speaker Johnson passed through the House a bill providing $14.6 billion in military assistance to Israel paid for by rescinding money that had already been appropriated for the IRS. Democrats screamed bloody murder at the time. It was an emergency supplemental, they said, and that meant the funds didn't have to be offset. In other words, Democrats insisted, because they hadn't budgeted at the start of the year for this spending, we should just be able to borrow the money and tack it onto the national debt. Speaker Johnson thought otherwise and offered a way to pay for the money to be redirected to Israel. Well, that bill went nowhere in the Senate. So this time, Speaker Johnson didn't offer an offset for the Democrats to complain about. As he wrote in a letter to his Republican colleague Saturday in announcing this legislation, quote, during debate in the House and in numerous subsequent statements, Democrats made clear that their primary objection to the original House bill was with its offsets, the Senate will no longer have excuses, however misguided, against swift passage of this critical support for our ally. End quote. Not surprisingly, the House Freedom Caucus objected to the Speaker's decision to remove the pay for. On Sunday afternoon, the caucus released a statement that said, quote, The most principled action taken to date by Speaker Johnson was the decision to pass a standalone, fully paid for Israel funding bill in November demonstrating our commitment to supporting our most important ally in a fiscally responsible manner. It is extremely disappointing that the Speaker is now surrendering to perceived pressure to move an even larger but now unpaid-for Israel aid package, reversing course on his stance to require new supplemental spending to be offset." End quote. On Sunday evening at 6.40 p.m., in other words, about as late Sunday as they could release the text, and still say they held to their promise to release the text no later than Sunday, Senate leaders released the text of the 370-page emergency supplemental spending bill. I'm not going to take the time here to go into the weeds on the text of the bill for the simple reason that Speaker Johnson tweeted shortly thereafter, quote, I've seen enough. This bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe. As the lead Democrat negotiator proclaimed, quote, under this legislation, the border never closes. If this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival, quote. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. The chairman of the three House committees tasked with conducting the impeachment inquiry against President Biden, the Ways and Means Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Oversight and Government Accountability Committee, are growing increasingly frustrated with the White House Counsel's office and its stonewalling of committee document requests. On Wednesday of last week, the three committee chairmen wrote to the White House Counsel and threatened that if he didn't produce documents by Wednesday, they'd send him a subpoena for the documents. The documents in question are simple and get right to the heart of a major avenue of investigation. The committees want all speech drafts produced between November 1, 2015 and December 9, 2015, of the speech given by then-Vice President Biden to the Ukrainian Parliament on December 9, 2015. According to media reports, Biden called an audible on U.S. policy toward Ukraine during that trip. That is, he unexpectedly shifted policy to include a demand ...that the Ukrainian president remove from office the Ukrainian prosecutor general or risk the billion dollars in U.S. loan guarantees that Biden was carrying with him on that trip. The committees first requested the speech drafts on August 17 of last year. The National Archives and Records Administration told the committees that it had gathered together all the documents responsive to this request within one week but that the White House Counsel's Office had requested that the National Archives not send the documents to the committees while it reviewed the request. That delay has now stretched for more than five months, and the committees are getting frustrated, hence the threat of subpoenas. Also on Wednesday, the Oversight Committee announced that James Biden, brother of President Biden, has agreed to come to Capitol Hill on February 21 for a private interview with committee members and staff. That's one week before Hunter Biden is scheduled to appear for a similar private deposition with members and staff. Now to the latest on the Trump indictments. With respect to the Trump indictments, three things of note occurred on Friday. First, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan subpoenaed Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis for all records regarding potential federal funding of her investigation into and case against former President Trump. He first asked her to provide such documentation last summer, but received no response. He followed up with several more letters requesting the documentation over the last several months, but continued to receive no response. So, Friday, he made the request more significant by accompanying them with official subpoenas. Second, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis acknowledged having what she called a personal relationship with Nathan Wade, the independent lawyer she had hired to serve as special counsel in her case against former President Trump. Several weeks ago, one of President Trump's co-defendants had filed legal paperwork alleging Willis had been having a clandestine affair with Nathan Wade, the lawyer she hired, at a cost to county taxpayers of $653,000 to serve as special counsel. According to documents recently revealed as part of Wade's divorce case, he paid for Willis's air travel on multiple occasions on trips she took with him. Trump's co-defendant alleges that this improper relationship disqualifies the two of them from further service in the matter. That is now under review. Third, Federal District Judge Tanya Chutkin ordered President Trump's planned March 4 trial date taken off the calendar, a formal acknowledgement of what we've all known for some time, that President Trump's claim of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution would delay his trial on election interference, while his claim is still being adjudicated. Quote, the court will set a new schedule if and when the mandate is returned, end quote, wrote the judge in the brief order she released Friday. That makes it much more likely that the first criminal trial for Trump will be the Manhattan district attorney's case against him for business fraud in connection with hush money payments. The tentative trial date on that trial is still March 25 and the judge there has scheduled a pre-trial hearing for February 15. Now to the Supreme Court and the question of Trump ballot access. At 10 a.m. on Thursday morning, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case to decide whether or not Donald Trump's name can be placed on the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that he was ineligible for the ballot because he had violated a clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that bars certain people who engaged in insurrection from serving in government positions. We've talked at length about this matter previously. I expect the court will make quick work of the decision. I also expect Chief Justice Roberts to do everything he can to find a way to get all the other justices to agree to a unanimous decision striking Colorado's action. And finally, to the Jenny Beth show, Episode 51 of The Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. It features Jenny Beth's conversation with former Arizona Congressman Trent Franks, who's running for Congress again. As always, it's highly recommended. And that's our Washington Report for this week.